Well, good morning, Cornerstone. If you're new, I'm, I'm Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 21. 1 Samuel 21. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, go ahead and grab one from under the chair in front of you. We'll be reading a lot of Bible today. 1 Samuel chapter 21, if you're not super familiar with the Bible, is on page 244. That's toward the front of your Bible. Just look for the big 2-1. That's where we'll be starting our time together. We're going to read uh, all of chapter 21 to begin. Uh, and then I'll uh, pray quickly. And we'll uh, get to work, uh, Lord willing, hoping to work our way through three chapters, 21, 22, and 23, along with a little bit of reading from the Psalms. So uh, prepare yourself to be turning around in your Bible a good bit. should be 45 minutes or so. Here's the big idea this morning. The Lord is our refuge. Trust in Him in even the most dire circumstances. The Lord is our refuge. Trust in Him in even the most dire circumstances. Of circumstances. This is the word of the Lord. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter, and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I've made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand. There is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us. As always, when I go on an expedition, the vessels of the young men are holy, even when there is an ordinary journey. Well, how much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread. For there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, His name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not a spear or a sword at hand? For I brought neither sword nor weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you'll take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart. And was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to the servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Let's pray. Lord, open our hearts, open our ears, open our minds. Will you do the work of your Holy Spirit and clear away the mist that's in front of us? And let us see your son, Jesus. Let him be precious to us. Let him be our treasure. Amen. The problem with real life is there are no soundtracks. All the best movies have great soundtracks. 
In my home, we sometimes play a game where we play the soundtrack to a movie to see who can guess what movie it comes from first. And uh, my son Micah has been banned from playing this game in my house because he's just too doggone good. Literally a second or two, I'm not kidding, a second or two into the music of any movie he's seen, and some that he hasn't even seen, he knows what movie it comes from. He's been like that since he was a, a little kid. It's too bad they don't give away college scholarships for music movie identification. But the Christian life has a soundtrack. The book of Psalms is the biggest book in the Bible, and it is a, a songbook. You would do, do well to give yourself to some practice of reading the Psalms, studying the Psalms, even memorizing the Psalms. So you, like Micah can do with movies, can call up a Psalm to fit any situation. Music is, music always has been deeply integrated into the life of God's people. Israel sang often. Moses wrote songs, David wrote songs, Solomon wrote songs, the Lord Jesus even sang hymns with His disciples. I've told you before, the thing that I personally missed most during the quarantine was the singing. The Psalms are the emotional heartbeat of God's people. It is the soul's attempt to reconcile what we know is true of God with what we see and feel in life. Nearly all of the Psalms hold this tension. This is who God is, yet this is what I see. And many of the Psalms reconcile that tension, and many of the Psalms don't. They just leave it open, just like life. One of my favorite things about First and Second Samuel is the soundtrack. David was a musician and a songwriter and a poet, as well as being a warrior and eventually a king. There are at least seven psalms attributed to this season in David's life. And one of those psalms attributed to this season of David's life, in fact, to chapter 21 of 1 Samuel, is Psalm chapter 34. So keep your finger in 1 Samuel 21 and turn forward in your Bible to the book of Psalms, chapter 34. Psalm chapter 34, if you are using one of the church Bibles, that is page 463. Psalm 34, and I want to read... The first 10 verses, although we'll come back to the following verses after that. Psalm chapter 34, David writes, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord, and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him have no lack the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. 
this psalm is helpful for our study in this part of 1 Samuel because the superscript of this psalm tells us that this psalm was written by David during the time when he acted crazy before the king of Gath. Abimelech, by the way, is a title for Philistine rulers. It's useful because it tells us how David thought and felt during this time in his life. Now, something you should know about reading Old Testament narrative like 1 and 2 Samuel. The author's purpose is to unfold the story for us. Very rarely will the author interject in order to tell us how we should understand the details of the story he's telling. He expects that the the reader will do that work and will keep reading the story to find its meaning. And the temptation that we face when reading narrative is to read it as, not just as description, but as prescription. So, for example, we're reading for Samuel, and we're recognizing pretty easily that, that King Saul is the bad guy. And so we're seeing in this a good guy, bad guy scenario. King Saul, he's bad. Well, that means that King David, soon coming King David, he must be the good guy. And that's true, sort of. We read it and we think, well, if David's the good guy, then what David is doing is what God would have him do. And that's probably what I should do then if I have a similar situation in my life. But as we'll see today and as we'll certainly see in the future, the text is not going to make that so easy. It is true that David is the anointed one of Israel and the the term anointed one is Messiah, So David is the Messiah of Israel, lowercase m. It's also true that in many ways David prefigures the true Messiah with the capital M, Jesus Christ. But David isn't Jesus Christ. David is a Savior, but David is not the Savior. And we're going to see how that plays out subtly and also explicitly in this book and in the next So here's where we are. King Saul has turned his back on the Lord, and the Lord has rejected him from being king in Israel. And he's trying desperately to hold to his position on the throne. And David, he sees as a threat to his throne. David is God's choice as to who should sit on the throne. He's the true king of Israel. And Saul sees David as a threat. In 1 Samuel 21... David flees from King Saul. This is his first flight from Saul. His dear friend Jonathan, who is Saul's son, heir to the throne, has protected David. And now David has to leave Israel, has to leave Saul's hometown and and to go out on the run. And David's first flight from Saul is his most reckless. He's acting in fear. He fears Saul, and this fear leads him to make foolish, even deadly mistakes. So he flees to the town of Nob. There's a couple of reasons for this. First, Nob had become the location of God's temple, the center of worship in Israel. You'll remember from earlier in the book, the Shiloh was the city where the temple of God resided, but uh, Shiloh was destroyed by the Philistines, and so it seems that they moved the, the temple to the town of Nob. We know that the ephod is there, we know that priests are there, we know the holy bread is there, and we know that the high priest is there, a man by the name of Ahimelech. And Ahimelech is troubled by David's unannounced visit. Not because he wasn't invited to Nob, but because he's coming to Nob alone. David is a high-ranking officer, commander of the armies of the Lord. Someone in David's position never traveled alone. And so this is a bad sign. Himelech asks, why are you alone? And listen to what David says. The king sent me on a last secret last-minute secret mission. 
I've got some men hiding outside of town and they're hungry. Give us some bread. David lies. And as much as we want to make that something else, some of the commentaries that I read this week wanted to make that something else. It's not. David lied to Ahimelech. Let's let the text speak for itself. Why would David lie? We can't say for sure, but we know that he's scared. And this is what men often do when they're scared. Perceive a danger, and rather than turning to the Lord for refuge, rather than doing the Lord's will, telling the truth, for example, he tells Ahimelech a lie to keep him off his scent. Even though he knows that those who seek the Lord lack no good thing, he seeks to procure food for himself. And Ahimelech tells him that the only thing that I have to feed you, and the only bread we have here, is holy bread. What the author calls the bread of presence in verse 6. Now, if you know your Bibles, you know what this is. In ancient Israel, the priests kept special loaves of bread before the Lord in the holy place. And those, bread, that, those loaves of bread would be changed out occasionally. And, and when those loaves would be changed out, the, the priests could eat the bread, but only the priests could eat the bread. And Himelech offers the holy bread to David on one condition, that he and his men will, were ceremonially clean. He says that you should not have had sexual relations with, with women. It's not that sex is bad. It, this is talking about a ceremonial thing. Sex is good. The Bible is the most sex-positive book ever written. But if David and his men are going to eat this holy bread, then their bodies needed to be ceremonially clean. And then in verse 8, we come to the second reason why David goes to Nob. And he seems to be trying, careful, trying carefully to disguise this reason. But he asks Ahimelech, oh, oh, and one more thing. Since I'm on the king's secret mission and I had to leave in such haste, you wouldn't happen to have like a spear or a sword here, would you? Now let the reader understand. What is the most popular, famous weapon in all of Israel? And who does that famous weapon happen to belong to? You remember from a couple of chapters ago, after David slew Goliath with his own sword, he put Goliath's sword in his own tent. And that was years ago. David has his own swords now. But do you think David lost track of Goliath's sword? Nah. David knew where Goliath's sword was. Isn't it likely that he came to Nob to get Goliath's sword? He's on the run from a mad king who has lots of swords, and David doesn't have one. Well, why did David want the sword of Goliath? Sense of safety, probably? Way to defend himself, probably? He's been chased by a crazy king. And last time he was in mortal danger, in a valley fighting with a giant, it was the sword that saved him, wasn't it? And I'm over here thinking it was the Lord who was his refuge. Well, in the middle of this whole interaction with Ahimelech in verse 7, we're introduced to a man named Doeg, the Edomite. We're told that he is chief of Saul's herdsmen. And for some reason, he's, de he's detained in the town of Nob, and who knows why. Doeg will come up later in chapter 22. This is a bad omen. This is sort of like when you're watching a movie and the director is just panning the crowd and then just kind of slows down the camera on the one person who has this nefarious look. The Edomites were descendants of Esau. 
the Edomites were not friendly to Israel. There was bad blood between the Edomites and Israel. It's sort of like they were like the Hatfields to Israel's McCoys, loosely related but universally hated. Saul defeated the Edomites back in chapter 14, and it could be that Doeg was conscripted into Saul's service. However, he ended up in Nob. He is loyal to Saul, and this is a bad sign, as we will soon see. So David leaves Nob, and he goes to Gath. That's a bad move. Gath is Goliath's hometown, remember? Gath belonged to the Philistines, remember? David had a bit of a reputation for killing and humiliating the Philistines, remember? There's someone back home with a box full of 200 foreskins of Philistines to prove it. What is he doing? The man who killed Goliath, going back to Goliath's hometown with Goliath's weapon strapped to his back, as if no one would notice. The man everyone hated, carrying the famous weapon of their dead champion. Who knows what he's thinking? He's just not making good decisions. I mean, of course... This would be the last place that Saul would go looking for him, but he's certain to get recognized, and he does get recognized, probably gets arrested, and the king calls for him, and David knows he's in trouble, and he does the most logical thing that he can think of. He starts acting like a crazy person. Clawing the walls, letting his spit run down his beard. I love the king's response. He's like, why did you bring this man to me? Do do I look like I need more crazy people working for me? David escapes and heads back to Israel. This is why I wanted to read Psalm 34. Because as David is reflecting on this season of his life, we can see in Psalm 34 how he understood that season of his life. And while the Lord ultimately protected David during that season of his life, and while the main point of Psalm 34 is that the Lord is our refuge and protection, David understood that his poor decision-making in chapter 21 led to great tragedy in chapter 22, as we will see next. Are you still in Psalm 34? Let's pick up reading in verse 11. This is what David says after learning this lesson in his life. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. I think that's the third time he's mentioned fearing God. What man is there who, does, who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Everyone wants to live long and see good days. David says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. This is a good lesson from a seasoned professor. The great tragedy that is coming in chapter 22, David understood to be his fault. David's lie to Ahimelech, which came, by the way, out of the reasonable desire to live and to see good. David's lie caused the death of many because he didn't trust the Lord. And here, Cornerstone, David is teaching us, his children, to fear God, to speak what is true, to turn from evil, to do what is good, to seek peace and pursue it. You see, a lie 
never sits still. A lie is never alone. It's like a virus multiplies into more lies. Once a lie is told, it keeps having to be retold. More, more lies needed to be added to the lie. And then it becomes even more easy to tell lies. And lies always have consequences. Always. And David's lie ends in tragedy. David has misread his situation with Saul. You see, he thought that Saul was his danger. But God was on his side. Greater is he who is in me than he that is in the world. David wrote Psalm 56, which we read at the opening during this time in Gath. And he wrote, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Well, those are his words. So why is he lying to protect himself? it's one thing to say it, it's another thing to believe it. And as long as David believed that Saul was his greatest danger, he will always justify his disobedience in the interest of self-preservation. Because I want to live, I want to see good. But Saul is not his greatest danger. His unbelief is his greatest danger. Not believing that God was his refuge. That his life was in God's hands. That's his greatest danger. David's lie is a hundred times more deadly than Saul's fury. And it's the same with us. We lie for the same reasons David lied. We're afraid that if people really knew us, they wouldn't accept us. We've got to protect ourselves. This is unbelief. It is a refusal to believe that if I do things God's way, then I'll actually get what I need. It is believing that if I do things my way, then I'll actually get what I need. Yet the reality is, who knows us best? Who has done more to prove His love for us more than Him? Christian, you can be honest in all things because He who knows you best loves you most. The Lord is your refuge. David goes on in Psalm 34. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Sinner, turn to Jesus Christ. The Puritan Richard Sibbs said, there's more mercy in Jesus than sin in you. Don't fear the admission of your guilt and need. Your guilt and your need are the one thing that qualifies you for God's mercy. It's your pride you should fear. Tell the truth. Come clean. Gather Christians around you. Confess your faults one to another. 
your heart will be broken. Your soul will be crushed. But the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Let's go back to 1 Samuel and let's read chapter 22 together. 1 Samuel 22. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpeh of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad came to David and said, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Here it seems that the Lord is gathering the most unlikely army to the future king of Israel. I mean, first his family comes to him, and then David seeks protection for his family with the king of Moab, which makes sense. If you have a mad king on your tail, who knows what Saul would do to get to David. I don't think I think David's just trying to protect Jesse and his, his mama, and he sends them to Moab. Moab, by the way, is not in Israel. And if you were with us during our series through Ruth, you'll see the significance of this. Remember, David's great-grandmother, Ruth, is a Moabitess. David has relatives in Moab, and so his parents will be safe there. Now, consider the motley bunch that the Lord gathers to David. Three categories of people are listed here. The distressed, those in debt, and bitter souls. What a better way to start a kingdom. And this is so like the Lord, to use the lowly things to confound the wise and to show himself strong. He says, bring to me the stressed out, those who are swimming in debt, Bring me loose cannons and gather them to my outlaw king. That way when he takes the throne, everyone will know I did it. Well, you can't help but think of those that the Lord gathered to Jesus, the ones that he chose to be his 12 apostles. They too, like these men, were nobodies, fishermen, tax collectors, seditionists, and later a Palestinian terrorist. And with those 12 misfits, the Lord changed the world. Let's keep reading verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? That all of you conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Well, that's what we should, we should expect from someone who has cut himself off from the Lord. Saul descends further down in this path of self-destruction. As we saw last Sunday, King Saul has been deposed and he's desperately clinging to any hope to remain in power. And he continues to be a, a warning to us. Do you see how Saul is turned inward? This is what happens to us when we turn away from the Lord. We, we collapse inward. In Saul's mind, everyone is against him. Do you notice? It's all about him. No one tells me when my son betrays me. No one feels sorry for me. 
the king on the throne. Saul too is afraid. He's afraid of losing his throne. And this man is a sad commentary on the state of our souls when we have bucked against the will of God for our life. How often do we throw pity parties and wallow in our own sorrow, pointing fingers at others, blaming others for not feeling sorry enough for us? This is my pity party. You're not even wearing a hat. Unless the Lord intervenes, we will all become like Saul, pushing everyone away until we're alone. Until we aren't alone. The mad king in us, the mad king here, always finds allies. In our bitterness, we make bitter friends, bitter agreements, bitter covenants, friendships formed in malice are deadly. Enter Doeg, the Edomite. Now I warn you, this next part is a little rough. Let's pick up reading in verse 9. Then answered Doeg, the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahidob. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. And Saul sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitab, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitab. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword? And have inquired of God for him so that he has risen against me to lie in wait? Is it this day? Then Himelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the son's king, the, son, the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. Then the king said, You shall surely die, Hemelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child an infant, ox, donkey and sheep, he put to the sword. Maybe I keep saying this, but this is Saul's lowest point. He orders the murder of the priests of God. How far the wicked have fallen. And not even the soldiers in Saul's army are willing to obey this order. You know, to disobey a king, especially a mad king, is to take your own life in your hands. But these men knew that, you know, there's a certain line, even for soldiers, that you just don't cross. Still, there's always, there's always a Doeg, the Edomite. There's always going to be friends formed in bitterness. And Doeg kills 85 priests for whatever reason, doesn't stop there. He goes to Nob and he kills everyone and everything, even women and children. Only one person escapes. 
Let's finish reading chapter 22. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David what that Saul had done to the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. Heavy words. I have occasioned the death of your family. David understood this to be his fault. You see, friends, when it comes to sin, there's no free lunch. There's always a price to pay. And in this book, those who pay the highest price are those who have the highest price to pay. Women and children. The city of Nob does not exist to this day because of David, because of his attempt to save his own skin. Keep your finger in 1 Samuel. Let's turn to another song that David wrote, Psalm 57. Psalm 57. It's page 477 of the church Bible. This psalm David wrote while he was hiding in a cave. The king writes, be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me, Selah. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Show me mercy, God, not because I deserve it, but because you are merciful. You are my refuge. Can you hear the outlaw king singing his song of repentance, his voice reverberating off the cave walls and reaching the ears of heaven? Can you see his outlaw men gathered around him? Perhaps even Abiathar is there, happy to just be alive, mourning the loss of his, his family. And they all hear the king, the Lord is my refuge. He will send from heaven and save. In 1 Samuel 23, David catches word that the Philistines have gathered against an Israelite town called Keilah. I don't know why the people told David. Why not tell the king? The king is the king. But maybe the king's too busy under the tamarisk tree ordering the death of God's people rather than save them. So David, even though he's on the run for his own life, goes and saves Keilah. His men are afraid. After all, they're commoners, not soldiers. David prays. The Lord promises victory. And, and, and David, David leads his men in victory and saves Keilah. Keilah is a fortified town, which means that the only way to get in and out of the town is through gates, which is dangerous if you're an outlaw. You need a lot of escapes. David knows this. And we learn that Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, when he escaped from Nob, uh, he took the linen ephod with him, which is the, the, what the high priest would wear when he's mediating for God's people. And so David asks the Lord if he's in danger in Keilah. He asks whether or not the people of Keilah, who he just saved, will deliver him into the hand of Saul if Saul shows up. And God says, yes, they will. So David and his men flee, and Saul pursues them. And the Lord protects David. It's not the terrain that protects David. It's not David's cunning that protects him. The Lord is his refuge. 
Skip down to verse 15. This will be the last part we read. Chapter 23, verse 15. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. Then the Zephites went up to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish, on the hill of Hakilah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall also be to surrender him to the king's hand. So David is Jonathan's dear friend, and he comes to David in the wilderness, and he strengthens his hand in the Lord. It is so kind of God to give us friends like Jonathan, men and women who come to us in our lowest when we're most afraid, and to strengthen us in God. You know, a few things encourage me more in this church when I hear of some of you reaching out to some of you, encouraging one another in the Lord. When I hear that so many of you are living selfless lives. We, we live in a day where everyone lives self-interested lives, isolated from one another. And this church selflessly reaches out to each other in love and care. It reminds me of Jesus. It reminds me that this is, this, this, I'm in the right place. This is my family. This is where I should be. This is a taste of heaven. Members of this church have agreed to covenant with one another to care about the spiritual well-being of one another. To give themselves to praying for one another, to strengthen one another in God. It's one of the most countercultural things that you'll ever see. Something the world will never understand. That your spiritual life is my business. And that my spiritual life is your business. We say that all the time. Faith is personal, but it is never private. Well, neither of them know this. But this is the last time that Jonathan and David will see one another. It breaks my heart to read Jonathan saying, you'll be king and I'll be there with you. He won't be. David will be king, but Jonathan won't be with him. That wasn't the plan for Jonathan. Jonathan is, is killed following his father into battle in a few chapters. Well, the Zephites report David's whereabouts to Saul, and David writes Psalm 54. He says, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. And in the remaining verses of this passage, Saul goes after David in the wilderness of Zeph, and they circle around this mountain, and it gets to the place where you think that David is about to be caught by Saul finally. And then Saul gets word that there's a Philistine invasion, and he breaks off pursuit of David. And once again, we learn the Lord is David's refuge. So what do we take away from these chapters? Well, I hope it's clear. The Lord is our refuge. We end where we started in, in Psalm 34, where we read in the final verse David's resolve. The Lord redeems the life of His servants. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. It may please the Lord to give you a life relatively free of affliction. It may please Him to give you comfort and a good job and health and financial security. I mean, just a few chapters ago, that's exactly what David had, right? He's the son-in-law to the king. He had a great job. Financial security, are you kidding me? And all of that is taken away from him through no fault of his own. And David gave in to fear when those things were taken away from him. And he turned to things outside of God to be his refuge, and it ended in great tragedy. If you do have comfort, financial security, a good job, health, thank God for those things. But I plead with you, don't trust them. Don't 
lean on them. Your security is not in your job or in your 401k. Your safety is not in the Smith and Wesson on your hip. Your Glock offers you no refuge. The promise of life and liberty and happiness is not guaranteed by any law of man, be it constitution or not. And do not be afraid of the man who can take away your freedom and your guns and your life. Psalm 34 tells you who to fear. Fear the Lord, you His saints. But those who fear Him will have no lack. The only sense of safety you have is in the promise of the faithfulness of God who said, He will send from heaven and save me. This is the only safe place. Union with Jesus Christ. The one sent from heaven. The one upon whom our sins have been laid. The only name given men by which man can be saved. Look to him. The Lord is your refuge. Let's pray. Father, we confess we have sought safety. in self-preservation, in Goliath's sword. We have acted in unbelief, lying to ourselves and to others. And so we turn to you, standing on your promise that you have sent our Savior from heaven. Would you look upon the cross of Christ and show mercy to us? Will you help us in our unbelief? Will you enable us to truly believe the Lord is our refuge? We thank you for the common grace of a government, ordered society, good jobs, a a home over our heads. Father, keep us from turning to them as if they were saviors. Keep our hearts from looking to these things for refuge and wean us from trusting in created things. Make us a people of deep faith, willing to tell the truth, willing to be broken, willing to be weak, willing to admit need, willing to confess our sins to each other, willing to care more about the glory of God and the good of others than we do about ourselves. We ask all this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' praise. Your assurance of pardon this morning comes from Psalm chapter 57, verse 2 to 3. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his promise for me. He will send from heaven.